Let me tell you a story, podcast number 94. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age of never mind it is a how truth long it's been. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Tom Logan is back with us today, reading his poetry, and I'll read another section from my hanky story of growing up in South Vietnam during the Vietnamese War. Steve will conclude with a little something to tickle your funny bone. Here's Tom. Thank you, Steve. I think I mentioned earlier about a new direction that I've been writing in, and I'll, I'll read a couple of poems from that category, if you will, in a few minutes here. But as I was going through some paperwork to find those, I, I ran across a story that poem, really, that, that had been rattling around in my head for, I'm going to say, 20, 25 years before it ever found its way to the page. And I like to cook. And growing up in a cow camp and, and uh, being with my dad in, in hunting camps, the most popular person in those camps is a cook. Yeah, you can go out and shoot an elk or a bear or a deer or something, but when those hunters get back to camp, they can't wait to get down to the cook tent and have some good camp-cooked meals. So I grew up with this appreciation for the cook. And idea began to form in my mind years and years and years ago about an old cowboy who liked to cook. And that's about as far as the original thinking went. But every year to five years or so, something else would, I would notice something or think of something. And, and in my mind, I would sort of put it together with previous thoughts that I'd had about this cowboy cook. To make a long story short, 25 years later, when I got ready to publish my first book, all of a sudden, the rest of, of the story, the words for the rest of the story came to me, and I wrote this fun little poem. It's called, I Cooks Up the Big House. I cooks up the big house, clean as clean might see, year on year after cooking down here, up yonder's where I be. I cooked up the big house, not down here with you gents, not chasing cows or feeding sows, and no more mending fence. I cooked up the big house for missus and the boss. Got a room my own and my socks get sewn, so you boys tend my hoss. I cooked up the big house, no more sleeping on a bunk with you on top to twist and flop and smelling like a skunk. I cooked up the big house with plumbing down the hall. I go in there and stand and stare at my reflection on the wall. I cooked up the big house, and I'm eating real good, too. Not so many beans as to bust my jeans, but more like rich folks do. When I cooked down the bunkhouse, you pokes never were so nice. Now you smile my way as if to say you're getting mighty tired of rice. I'll fetch you down some fixins if I ever get the urge, but my days are full and that's no bull, and I'm not often on the splurge. I cooked up the big house, and if I take a notion, I might drop by to just say hi and brag on my promotion. I think this next uh, few poems, uh, at least from my 
maybe my selfish point of view, I think are probably some of the best technical writing that I've done, not necessarily in terms of rhymes or words, but more the the thought process, the process of getting them from wherever they began down onto the page caused me to go a little bit deeper into my thoughts and did a little more research to come up with some ideas. So I'll read a couple, a couple of these, and I, I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. This first one's called A Siren's Call. A life to the seaward of moon and of tide, of farthings and fathoms, with the heavens to guide, to unknowns in darkness, in faith they confide, in mystery and old myth, and luck on their side. To venture the offshore, foremaster astride, of the wind for the bounty or along for the ride. Strides of foreboding upon ages of gold will stretch to the breaking your patience and gold. Tales steeped in wisdom of adventures untold will beckon your pleasure, then call from the hold. The price is the knowing, with lone hearts gone cold, to wrench free the dark truths when stories unfold of pirates and treasure and other such tale, of battle and beauties and high sea and sail, awash with such intrigue some half-truths unveil a hidden, lost, dark cove obscured in the gale. The brave and the desperate press on, ere to fail, to capture a fortune, a snare on the pale. Some of my heritage is Scottish and Irish, mixed in with probably some Native American and some English. This poem reflects sort of a longing that I have somewhere inside to see the places where my ancestors were born and raised. I watched a TV special on the Croft, C-R-O-F-T, and it's like a homestead on the shores of of Ireland, uh, northern England, and I was so impressed with some of the things they talked about in the Croft and the people who lived there and worked the land on property that they didn't own. They got a share of whatever they could grow. I call this Between the Moor and Croft, that's M-O-O-R, Between the Moor and Croft. My heart lies over yonder, between the moor and croft, for the cold winds of November don't keep my dreams aloft. To journey out there, seaward, would suit my soul's desire, to smell again the salt grass, for the old world to aspire. I'm bound there by the old ones, the druid and the elf, and leprechauns and ancients here present in myself. Those rocky shores still hold me, the sea foam's emerald frost, O Scotland, home forever, between the moor and croft. I have one more nice little poem that I I really love. It had a really simple beginning. I worked uh, for the Forest Service in the summer of 1966, and I worked with a Nez Perce Indian gentleman named Virgil Types, and he was forever chewing on wild celery, and uh, he said it had some medicinal benefits and kept him from catching colds and things like that. And we were in Grangeville, Idaho one weekend, and he was going to go out and gather up some wild celery. And I asked him to take me along. And we went out amongst the camas plants and things like that and came across this very wet, sort of boggy little stream that you could hardly tell it was flowing at all. 
but it was clear and cold, and uh, he got his celery. And a number of years later, well, from 1966 until I wrote my first book a few years back, the idea was there to come up with a poem that uh, reflected that experience. This poem's called The Rill. From a gnarled stump of driftwood, alongside an ancient rill, there sets be perched in lonesome song a wayward whippoorwill. Where once a deeper stream had flowed to water all around, can now be seen some meadow flowers where sundrops can be found. The bare grass makes this place its home where angels come to cry, so straight its tower and sand white head that spears toward the sky. Delicacies lie beneath this soil, while celery and camas thrive, and here and there a cattail root has managed to survive. Where land provides its sustenance, it hopes it always will, seeps up from darker waters deep the cool and precious rill. I guess probably because of my Irish heritage, I have a love for the limerick. I think traditionally they are a little bit ribald, if you will, a little bit naughty sometimes, but they have a particular pattern. First two lines rhyme, second two lines rhyme, fifth line rhymes with the first two, and a five-line poem with that rhyme pattern. And I went to write some limericks a while back before I published my first book, and I wanted to tell a longer story than I could tell with just five lines. So I grouped together a bunch of five-line poems, and I'm not even sure they qualify as a limerick anymore because I've sort of broken the, the pattern of having only five lines. But I did manage in each verse to keep that rhyme and, and line structure. And the limericks that I've written come from experiences along the Clearwater River up in uh, north central Idaho where I was born and raised. And one day a, a friend of mine that I played music with, he had a, a coon hound and he wanted to go out and and catch a raccoon that he could use for training a new dog. So we went down by the Clearwater River, and, and we set a trap and went back the next day, and there was a cat in the trap, and we were going to release the cat, which we did, but the dog didn't know he wasn't supposed to chase it, so off he went chasing the cat. So I wrote a, a limerick, I'll still call it that, um, about that experience. It's called The Tom and Old Rounder. There was a tomcat in Lenore that would roam round at night by the shore. Near the Clearwater River, all cold in the quiver, he persevered, thinking he'd score. There then came a night with full moon. We'd been out to try trapping a coon, but that cat found our bait with no caution for fate, became caught. Would his life end so soon? In the midst, the next day out we go to the trap with old rounder in tow. When we opened the door, the cat scratched and he tore, poor old rounder's nose, and much more. Now the dog was not bred to back down, so he and the cat went around. With fur on the fly, I made a grand try to reach into the fray for the hound. I lunged as I might for the dog, but I slipped when I stepped on a log. The cat saw his chance to avoid further dance and disappeared into the fog. The hound, always up for a run, lit a shuck thinking he'd won. He took after the cat, we know not where he's at, that coon-chasing son of a gun. Then one night, several weeks hence, I see the hound hunkered down by the fence. He was mere skin and bone, nor was he alone. With the cat in his sight, things were tense. He's all poised, and he's ready to pounce on the cat who won't back down a trounce. He there made his play, and I'll swear to this day, old Tom bested him then, ounce for ounce. 
Now, when the full moon in winter shines o'er, that old bridge down by Lenore, by the Clearwater River, all cold in the quiver, he'll be out there still looking for more. Oh, way to go, Tom. <laughs> I like that. And let's just figure, since the, uh, the poetry police aren't here, let's figure that is a real limerick, even though it has more than one stanza. I want to read one more that kind of has its roots in my childhood. So here's a, a shorter limerick than the last one, but uh, four verses nonetheless. This limerick had its origins when I was a young man up in on the Clearwater River, born and raised in Orfino. But every Thanksgiving, they would have a turkey shoot down at a small community along the river called Peck. At that time, maybe population 40 or so. But at the annual turkey shoot, there was probably more like 400. Guys and gals, kids would bring their rifles and shotguns and pistols and shoot at still targets and moving targets. And my dad would always take me down. And, and even though we were both good shots, he liked to shoot dice more than anything. And probably more of a sure thing to win a turkey shooting dice than waiting in line to shoot firearm. And after years and years, I, I thought back on those experiences when I was putting a book together. And I wrote down these words in limerick form to kind of capture a little bit of that experience. It's called Peck the turkey hen. Down the Clearwater River near Peck lives a hen with a crook in her neck. With that wart on her nose and that hideous pose, one would think her life mostly a wreck. As might only appear to the wise, was her list of most eligible guys. There was always one near to this unseemly deer and the mystery concerning the wise. The gobblers, when queried, confessed, even though she was shoddily dressed, there was no need for flight when it all came to light. She was ample of build and of breast. So the toms would continue to boast, and the case so seems over for most. But late in last season, for obvious reason, she became the Thanksgiving roast. Tom, how can our listeners find your books? Probably the easiest, quickest way is to go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. You can search for Wisdoms, a book of quotes and encouragements. That's my latest book. No poetry in there, just some of my own personal quotes that I've penned over the years, combined with uh, some of my own artwork that's really a treasure for me in itself. And the story of the origins of that artwork are in the book. My first book, A Batch of Pancakes, is really a book about life, layers of life, our culture, our backgrounds, our financial status, our environment, our family, personality, occupation, and how those things all sort of stack together to make us who we are. And the poetry and the stories in the book really outline those layers of my life in poetic and short story form, if you will. And that book is, is also available, A Batch of Pancakes, Poems, Prose, and Wisdom, and Wisdoms, A Book of Quotes and Encouragements, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Once again, I'm reading from Maya Hankey's memoir titled The Faithful God I Didn't Know. And once again, I'm apologizing for mispronouncing um, Vietnamese words, but I will do my best. This section is titled Teen Years. After two or three years of living in the middle of a war, 
my family decided to move to Dangtu, which was a small refugee village provided by the Kwat Gia government. This was 1965 or 66, and I was either 13 or 14. We packed our belongings, what we could carry with us, and snuck out at night so the Viet Cong could not see us leave our home. We lived in Dangtu for a year or a year and a half at the most. My family had no calendar or clock. We lived by the seasons, the rising and setting of the sun, and by the rooster's crow. My father was a carpenter as well as a fisherman. He built a one-room shack in Dangtu for our family. Eight of us lived there, including my grandmother. We had one bed, which my grandmother, my brother, and I slept in, and we had a four-legged pot for cooking. My father worked in Queen An, a four- or five-hour bus ride from the refugee camp. He built boats and houses for people there and came home only once or twice a month. My mother, brother, grandmother, and I maintained the shack. At that time, our family consisted of five children, plus my grandmother, mother, and father. We picked Ro Ma, a leafy green vegetable that grew wild alongside the highway, and sold it to buy things we needed like rice and meat. My friends Thon and Nan and I bought Coca-Cola from the store to sell to the GIs. I also did laundry for the American servicemen. The GIs brought their clothes to me and I took them home and washed them by hand. Then I would iron the clothes and take them back. I was about 15 years old by then. The place where we lived was as dangerous as the village we'd left because it was near an American base. The Viet Cong attacked the camp every night. They also threatened to kill anyone who had anything to do with the Americans. I feared for my life most of the time. But then a senator from the Kwak Gia government offered his home as a refuge for my sister Cha and me. She was 16 and I was 15. He had a good reputation and my family trusted him. We would be protected there because his home was guarded by government soldiers. The first night my sister and I stayed at his house, the senator came into our room around midnight to molest us. We somehow managed to escape from him and run out of the house. We ran to the marketplace where the neighborhood bus was parked and climbed inside to hide for the rest of the night. If the bus had not been there, I do not know where we could have gone to be safe. We both were shaking and scared and worried we were going to die. We held each other all night and prayed, too scared to fall asleep. We prayed and wished that it was daylight right now. I believe God was watching over us because we made it through the night, and when daylight finally came, we walked home. We told our families what had happened, but telling anyone else would have been dangerous because the senator was a man of influence. One day while I was selling Coca-Cola to American soldiers, I noticed that my friends were selling them cigarettes called Kanza. The G.I. seemed really to like them, so although I did not know what they were, I bought two to sell. I sold one and only found out later that they were filled with marijuana. When one of the soldiers who'd been buying my Cokes no longer came around, I asked some of the other men why he wasn't there. I knew very little English, and the G.I.s knew no Vietnamese, so we used a lot of sign language. While we were talking, a soldier with MP, for military police, printed on his helmet, came along. He indicated I was to go with him. I did, but I was very afraid. He escorted me to a bunker where he showed me a helmet with a large hole in it. I now know the helmet must have belonged to the missing soldier. A few days earlier, an American jeep had hit a landmine and two soldiers were killed. 
I thought the MP was showing me the helmet because he was going to kill me. I had no idea what the GI was saying. I did not know how to tell him I had not broken the law. As I sat there frightened for my life, I remembered my grandfather telling me to make a circle with my finger and thumb. I did that, and I prayed to God. I knew he was with me, even though I knew nothing about him. The MP checked my purse, and he did not find whatever he was looking for. He also did not find the marijuana joint. The Lord protected me by hiding it from the MP. After 45 minutes to an hour, the man let me go. I was happy and relieved because I was sure I was going to die. I felt like I'd been dead and had come back to life. When I returned home and told my parents the story, they insisted I never ask about any Americans ever again, and I obeyed them. I never again asked about any of my GI Coca-Cola customers. We'd lived in the village four or five months when my cousin Dell, who was 20 and lived and worked in Fu Quat, began coming to our house to visit. Dell's mother, my Aunt Key, lived in another village and visited us when her son was there. She brought baskets of fish and crab with her to sell. One day, Key took a taxi to our village, but she felt the driver asked too high a price for the distance she wanted to go. She didn't pay what the driver asked, so he took one of her baskets of fish. When she got to our house, she told her son about the incident. That made him mad, and he decided to go get the basket. Dell was riding in an overloaded taxi on the way home. Hauling too many people put a strain on the engine. My cousin got out to help push the taxi up a hill and fell and hit his head. Later, after he got to our house with the basket, he said he had a headache. We could see the swollen bruise on his head. My mother found a doctor and brought him to our house. He said Dell had a blood clot, but he couldn't do anything about it because the region had no surgeons or facilities to perform surgeries. We bought medicine for Dell, and my grandmother did what she could for him, but he only lived a month or two before he died. My mother, who was pregnant, and I had to transport his body back to his home village to be buried with his family members. This casket was quite heavy, but we managed to carry it about 500 feet to catch a taxi. Because the casket was too long for the trunk, it hung out the rear of the car. The taxi ride to the stop closest to my thing, Dell's family's village, took around 30 minutes. Then we had to carry Dell the three miles to my thing. The walk probably only took two or three hours, but his lifeless weight made the trek seem much longer. Along the way, we had to hide from the planes that flew over so they wouldn't bomb us. We were very happy to get to my thing and deliver Dell's body to his parents. Then we got, walked back to the main road and caught a taxi to go home. We were both so relieved to sit again. In 1967, the fighting between the Quat Gia soldiers and the Viet Cong was getting closer and closer to the refugee village. The gunfire we'd previously heard once or twice a month, we now heard every other night. My friends Thon and Nan and I thought it was only a matter of time before we couldn't sell coke to the Americans or do their laundry. We made plans to move to Kui Nan, where my father worked. This was a big city with a commercial airport that was also used by the American military base located there. We thought we'd have a better opportunity to find work. I wanted to earn enough money to move my family from the refugee village to a safer location. Thon had a place to stay, so Nan and I moved in with her. After a few weeks of job hunting and finding nothing, we became desperate and decided to go to a bar to see if they had any job openings. The outside of the building was attractive, but it had a sign with a picture of women wearing very little clothing. We went inside, ordered sodas, and observed all the activity around us. 
The women were dressed in very short dresses and wore a lot of makeup. I soon became uncomfortable and realized this was not something I could do. My friends felt the same way, so we left to continue our job search. The next section is titled, First Job. I heard of a brothel madam who needed a housekeeper, and I went to talk to her. She hired me, and I began my first real job. It included shopping for her and cooking her meals, plus doing her laundry. I didn't mind the work, but I knew I could make more money working for the GIs on base. When a job opened at the NCO club, I applied and was interviewed and hired about a month later. I sold food and drinks to the GIs. The job paid enough that I could save money to bring my family to the city to be close to me. Because I lived with a friend in an apartment, I did not live with my family. Instead, I provided my father with the money to build another shack. Later, I was able to give him the funds to build his own boat, so he didn't have to work for other people. During the first few months of working at the NCO club, I met a GI named David Leroy. We became close friends and eventually fell in love. Our friendship lasted for three or four months, and then he said he had to go to the States on leave. He wrote me a letter every week for two or three months. He said he'd be back for me, but his friends told me he lied. Not only was David not returning to Vietnam, he was married. That broke my heart. I decided then to never get involved with a GI again, or any other man. About this time, a neighbor from a village not far from where my parents lived asked my dad if he could marry me. Having had an intimate, though short, relationship with the G.I. prevented me from accepting his proposal. In my culture, if you were not a virgin when you married, you would bring shame upon your family. I declined the offer. My father agreed with me that I did not have to be engaged to him if I did not want to be engaged to him. I returned the offerings the neighbor gave to my parents and resigned myself to the fact that I could not marry a Vietnamese man. Being very poor and lacking in education, I also knew that marrying an American GI was not going to happen. Living in America was a dream I never had. How could that be possible? My plan at this point in my life was to continue to support myself and to help my family. However, I did not know that the God I had not met had his own plan for my life. He knew my future, and I praise him for watching over me. We're going to finish up with a reading from Things That Go Bad in the Night, Tales from a Country Kid by Roger Pond. This one is called The Old Ones Were Funny. It's hard to overstate the effect of television on our society. A few weeks ago, I listened to a political journalist describe the changes in national political conventions to accommodate television. This journalist covered presidential conventions for many years and has watched them adapt to the media. This man says national conventions have reached the point where anyone who raises an issue is likely to be thrown out for insubordination. The main purpose of caucuses is to instruct state delegates on how to wave their signs and when to smile at the camera. He also related a story about an elementary school teacher who won an award for his innovative teaching methods. The teacher discovered the best way to teach youngsters to read is to make a videotape of the text and then play it back on a TV screen. He explained that today's children are so attuned to watching television they will watch almost anything if it comes through the tube. Opening a book is hard for them. The teacher also commented he has considered dressing himself as a television for making class presentations, but he's afraid the little rascals will run up and try to change the channel. 
All of this reminded me of my childhood during the early days of television. Readers may be surprised to learn I was hardly more than a toddler when television first became popular. Before my family had a TV, we would walk to the neighbors about once a week to watch Friday Night Wrestling or Midwestern Hayride. Of course, cars were in common use by this time, but we usually walked. Television was far more educational in those days. Midwestern Hayride, for example, featured people like Kenny Roberts, the singing cowboy. Roberts could sing, leap into the air, chew gum, and play a guitar, all at the same time. Perhaps Kenny's greatest talent was his ability to jump four feet in the air while strumming his guitar without missing a note on the way up or down. He could wiggle his ears and wave his cowboy hat up and down, using nothing more than the muscles in his head. We watched educational puppets like Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, and I'll always remember the old puppet who played the piano while keeping a lighted cigarette stuck to his lower lip. Now there was a role model for you. This puppet was called Snarky Parker, or something like that, and he had a horse that would come out and dance around on the stage or the piano or whatever got in his way. All I can remember about the horse is that he ate some sticks of dynamite thinking they were candy canes. He had old Snarky worried for a while. My kids wouldn't believe my stories about Snarky Parker until we found him in a Smithsonian magazine this week. He was shown talking to Walter Cronkite in a 1950s news broadcast. The kids still aren't sure about the singing cowboy and his hat-wiggling routine, but that's okay. I never was real sure about him either. And that is going to take us out. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.